In this episode of our True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks speaks to founder and CEO emeritus of Admiral Group, Henry Engelhart, about his approach to running a successful business, his journey as an entrepreneur, and what he looks for in people and businesses seeking investment. Henry, welcome to the Julius Bear True Connections podcast. I'm really delighted that you're able to join us and so grateful for you for taking the time. There is an absolute ton of stuff we can talk about, but I know our listeners will be super interested in hearing a little bit from you about your career in business. And just as important as the stories around how you got things right, particularly at Admiral, how things didn't go quite so well. And I'm sure over the course of your career, some things haven't gone quite so well. I also know that you're passionate about plenty of causes outside of business. So it'd be great to talk to you about those as well. But firstly, Henry, you know, you're fondly remembered for being the boss of Admiral Insurance, founder, former CEO, and I think you're still now a part-time working employee of the firm. Is that right? That is correct. Still there. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably this is your day off. <laughs> every day is my day off and every day is my day off. I'm a bit like a bad rash. They just can't seem to get rid of me. <laughs> but Henry, I mean, you didn't start out in the insurance sector. I mean, I think you started off as a trader in Chicago, went on to sales and marketing. Um, how did all of that lead you into the insurance industry? I mean, was it something you had a specific interest in? Was there any area of expertise? <laughs> That's a funny one. A specific interest in car insurance. I don't think so. Alan, thank you very much. and really glad to be here today. And if I can do anything that helps your list, in any way, then this will be uh, worthwhile time spent. I'd like to start because of the nature of the audience that you've got. I think it's something for me to say, look, you know, I went to a public high school outside Chicago. I did pretty well. I wasn't top of my class. I went to a decent university, a state university. I did pretty well. I wasn't top of my class. I got an MBA from an excellent MBA school. <laughs> Didn't make the dean's list. Sorry. The upshot of that, what I'm trying to point out is, you know, if I can do the things that I've accomplished, your listeners, you can do the things that you want to accomplish. The biggest obstacle I find time and time again in trying to coach people and lead them to them not achieving their goals is themselves, that they don't see it, they don't believe it, they follow paths that, you know, they're supposed to do, and they don't break loose and utilize that natural ability that we all have. And so I used to introduce myself to every new starter into the UK business. And over time, that meant something 20, 25,000 people over the many years. And I would say to them, you know, at first I'd ask them if they have any talent. And mostly, thank goodness for our recruitment, they said, yes, we have talent. And I would stop and I'd say, well, what are you doing to make the most of your talent? Not what's being done to you, at you, with you, for you, you know, not the training classes you're going to go through, but what are you doing to make the most of your natural ability? I think everybody has natural ability. It's what we do with it that makes the difference. So everybody out there can succeed. I have total belief, you know, in some way, shape or form, success is a possibility. But you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe you can do it. You don't say, oh, you know, there are two people smarter than me. So what? You know, being a successful in business is such a mix. It's such a cocktail of skills. 
that it's undefinable. I can't define it. You know, if we could put together a recipe for making a great leader, we would. We'd all just sit there and follow the recipe. You can't. Some introverts are great leaders. Some extroverts are great leaders. Some people persons are great leaders. Some geniuses are great leaders. Equally, I could say in all those categories, there are bad leaders. <laughs> so, you know, people need to get out there and believe in themselves. Now, you asked the question about how I ended up in car insurance. Well, it is a bit of a funny story. I was a management consultant, and I really didn't like being a management consultant. I remember distinctly, I was at a conference, and I had seen an ad in two different marketing magazines looking for a marketing manager for a business that hadn't started yet. And the only thing it said about it was it was financial services. So I called to book the interview and all, and I asked the lady, I said, well, what financial service is it exactly? And she sounded really like she wanted to crawl under the table and hide. She said, well, it's car insurance. And I remember, this is before mobile phones, I took the phone away from my ear and I looked at it and I thought, oh no, how dreadful. What could be more boring than car insurance? And hey, I really didn't like being a management consultant. So I went for the job and I got the job. And one of the first things I did was name Churchill Insurance, Churchill Insurance. I was the original marketing manager, marketing and sales manager there. And what I learned was, that car insurance was an amazing business, changing in front of our very eyes, pricing was incredible, consumer marketing, sales staffs, managing people, claims were ridiculously complex area to handle claims. It was an amazing business. But what I really learned, somebody out there is making buttons and he's got a new one. It's a five holer. It's going to be green. What well, you know? Whatever business, if you love business, once you get involved, every business is exciting. Every business has challenges, consumer behavior, regulation, competition, suppliers, staff, everything about it makes business exciting to do and to be in. It doesn't really matter what the product is. Do you get that excited about most businesses, Henry, or do you think at the time you were in the right place at the right time, you know, with the insurance sector going through quite a change at that point? Yes. I mean, we were super right place at right time. We launched at the right moment in the industry because prices were surging back in 1993. And we walked in, we didn't have debts from previous years to pay off. And so I remember distinctly, it's funny because we rebudgeted very early on and we broke through all our budgets and forecasts and the turnover for the first year was 18 million pounds and we thought we were kings of the earth. Admiral now does that every kind of two days. <laughs> so, you know, we've gone on from there. But yeah, being in the right place at the right time certainly helps. But thinking about where is the right place at the right time? Where is the world going? Giving these things some thought. You know, we got in, we were selling over the telephone. There was no internet then. We were selling over the telephone. And that was clearly the way things were going. The idea of walking into an office and getting a car insurance quote, that was clearly on the decline. Now, we didn't have first mover advantage. Admiral was the seventh telephone-based distributor into the UK market seventh. And most of the other six are gone. I think one is left and we're bigger than they are. So first mover can be very helpful, but you don't have to be. Another thing is let other people pave the roads and you drive behind a nicely paved road. That's also something you can do. And I guess that's the point on, you know, busting the myths of startups, right? You know, do you necessarily have to be first? Do you have to be better than others? 
and do you have to be lucky? But I guess what you're saying is not necessarily. Well, you have to be different. You can't do things exactly like the other guys are doing them and expect to win. They're probably bigger. They've been around longer. They have more information. They have lower costs. You've got to do something different. And it could be internal. It could be external. It could be both. It could be new technology. You know, you've got to put your mind into it. You don't have to be first. Sometimes being first is a huge help. But you don't have to be first. Yeah. We weren't first to go on the Internet. And the firm that was first, it basically firsted itself right out of business. It ended up getting down to zero and selling out because they spent so much money trying to figure it out. We saw them pave the road. We drove behind. We made huge gains when the Internet started to flourish for car insurance. We had a brand called Elephant. And the mindset of the day was give everybody the way they want it. So Admiral with a phone number, Admiral with a web address, direct line with a phone number, direct line with a web address. And we came out with a brand called Elephant and you couldn't find the phone number. It was all about elephant.co.uk. And we launched it on August 2nd, 2000. And I remember distinctly, we obviously, we floated the business in September of 2004, the whole group. And Elephant at that point in time was our biggest brand. It had gone past Admiral, which had started seven years earlier. And they offered basically the same product, but one said internet only, and one said any way you want. And people thought, oh, at the time, if it's on the internet, it must be better, it must be cheaper. So they went towards Elephant. We went where people were going. We got in front of them and woof, took it. And then we put ourselves out of business, not quite out of business, but we created price comparison for car insurance with Confuse.com. And that just started to take over between 2003 and 2007. Every day was glorious in Confuse.com. Every day was better than the previous day. It was amazing. Incredible. And I guess, Henry, that's all about getting your target market right. It sounds incredibly simple, but I'm sure you've seen many get that wrong over the years. That was one of the key things for us at the very beginning, because we saw that certainly all the new telephone-based car insurers, they were all going in for the same customer, the good driver, the suburban driver, the older driver. And we said, look, we're going to struggle to compete with the economics that they've already built up day one. But there's a segment of the market, what we call higher premium business. So it's not the extreme end. It's not a 19-year-old with a Ferrari. Should 19-year-olds get Ferraris? But it could be a 19-year-old and it could be a Ferrari, but it could be London-based or city-based. And we saw that those people were using brokers. Brokers were taking a percentage of the premium for their commission. So our marketing costs, which was more or less fixed, only had to compete with that broker's commission. And we also saw that that group was paying higher premiums. So they were predisposed to shop because they had a lot more to gain than somebody paying a lower premium. And wow, it took off like a rocket. You know, our marketing costs were lower in the first year than the broker commission, not even to mention the life value of the customer. So we could offer, so if the broker-led insurer was offering the product at 500 and paying the broker 75, we were bringing the business in for 50, we could offer it at 490 and we still had more margin. So the customer came to us for a cheaper price. We got the business with more margin than the insurer would have had if he had gotten the business through the broker. It's a fascinating business, Henry, but not only has it just been successful financially, I mean, it's probably one of the most admired companies globally. And we've all heard about the incredible culture, the positive working environment, 
at Admiral over the years, something which was very much at the heart of it when you set it up. But Henry, tell me, when you were sat in your London Bridge office with your team setting out your business plan for this new insurance company, how much of that plan was dedicated to people, culture, the operations, as opposed to being incredibly successful from a financial perspective? Well, some, but that has evolved. I mean, company cultures are living organisms. They're always changing. They're always evolving. And ours has grown and matured as we saw the benefits of what we were doing. But even early on, when there were just five of us in the team, I got the group together around the little round table. I was always at a little round table. And I said to them, I said, I plan to have a successful business career and I plan to have a successful family life. And I do not believe the two are mutually exclusive. I will work hard, but I will not be here all hours, day and night. I hope to have breakfast every morning with my family and dinner every evening with my family. Okay, there will be some exceptions. Sometimes it'll take overtime, but by and large, I am going to strive for that, what is now called work-life balance. We didn't have the term then. And I told them all right then. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, that's not just for me. If I'm hoping to have that balance, then I've got to make sure that everybody in our organization has the opportunity to have that balance. I'm not going to insist that anybody works 12-hour days. Yeah, maybe once in a while, there are times. But by and large, and then I learned that when people would take time for themselves, they worked better when they worked. You know, I have one of my little sayings is always take lunch. And it doesn't mean you go out with a group or anything like that necessarily. Most days I would just go out with a newspaper, but get out, get away from the office for an hour, clear your head. You will do better in the afternoon when you do that. People who sit and eat at their desks, they think they're doing great things. They're working harder and maybe they are, and maybe that day they do better. But business is a long slog. I want you working great for 10 or 20 years not for a week. And that means you've got to pace yourself all the time. Get out, take half an hour, an hour, get a coffee, read a newspaper, walk around the town you are, whatever it is. If you're working from home, walk around the block. Doesn't matter. Clear your head. You will be better that day, I believe. But more importantly, you'll be better over the long run. These things evolved as we saw them work, as we saw many of the things we were putting in, in terms of like ministry of fun and things like this, and the economic results. Remember, we're in a commodity industry. People would look at our numbers and they go, how can you possibly be so much better than everybody else in the market? And, you know, there were things we were doing, clever things we were doing in a sense with the business, with ideas, but also really clever things we were doing to have a highly motivated workforce, competitive advantage to our workforce. And people look at our financial results and then they look at all the awards. You know, we're the, like the 14th best place to work in the world. And we're the only company to be in the Sunday Times top 100 companies to work for list every year it's been compiled. That's a good one for your Christmas trivia question. It's Admiral Group. It's not Google. It's not Microsoft. It's not Bain Consulting. It's, sorry, it's not Julia Spare. It's Admiral Group. We're the only ones to be in that list. And the beauty is that we figured out that when you're in those lists, you give yourself a much, much better chance to get those great financial results. But Henry, it's not just the company, is it? Yourself and your leadership team are well decorated in terms of business leaders showing the way. And that's been built on the back of having 
the right team of people around you. And I think you've spoken many times about how important people are in your business and similarly how critical the team is to bring success to a company. How difficult do you find bringing people into the firm? I'd be interested to hear what your sort of interview style is like when you're looking at CVs and trying to decide whether these people are right for your business. What sort of process do you go through in your mind to select the right people to bring into your team? Well, you're absolutely right, Alan. It's the team, the team, the team, the team, the team. You know, people make the difference. Your senior team is going to make a huge difference. You're looking for lots of things. I look for things maybe that are a bit different. I'm not looking for people who just go from A to B. I want people to think about where is C? What about R? You know, how do I get there and around? You can train people on most things, certainly insurance. I didn't know anything about insurance until I got into insurance. That can be trained. I can't train you on attitude. I can't train you on teamwork. Yeah, those are really difficult. Those are personality traits. So I highly value the way a person is versus what they know. In fact, we go out of our way to recruit people who don't know anything about insurance because they come in and they look at our business and what we're doing without the blinkers that we've learned to put on over the years. And they see things we don't. So we hire a lot of people for development type roles. Basically, let's get to know each other. And then we can see what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you want to do, what we need you to do, and people move up from there. It's a whole lot easier than saying, oh, I need a new CEO for one of my businesses and going out and recruiting them cold. You can do that, and we've done it well sometimes and very poorly sometimes, but it's much easier if you get people in and you learn about them, they learn about you, and you go on from there. My interviewing style well, I love to start by just saying to people, all I know about you is what's on your CV, put some meat on the bones. And then I shut up. And it's amazing. I have had people talk for 35 minutes without inhaling, you know, and I'm sitting there going, I could never work with this person. Forget it. You know how they deliver it. And you know what's amazing to me, Alan, is that people don't seem to practice answering that simple question. Now, if I said to somebody, I said, look, you're making a presentation to the board of directors next week. Would you practice before you made it? And they all say to me, yes, of course we practice. Well, you're going for a job interview. What things are really that much more important in your life than where you're going to spend eight or 10 hours every day for who knows how many years? This is incredibly important. Do you practice going through your CV? You'd be amazed at how few people practice it. And then they come out. And the worst thing they can say to me when I say that is, where should I start? Come on, it's your CV. You know the job you're applying for. Figure it out where to start. Don't ask me where to start. Tell me something that will help me choose you for this job. And if the job is a leadership position, start by saying, well, in my last three roles, I led teams of people to do great things. Would you like to hear about those? Yes, I would. Don't start by telling me what high school you went to. Yeah. Tell me what I need to know for this position. Okay. So we get past that. And then I do situation questions. I don't linger on people's CVs because I figure anybody can say anything they want. I'm not going to be able to do a lot of fact checking on your CV. So you tell me what, who knows? I give you questions where there's no right or wrong. I want to see how you think. I'll even say to you, give me three reasons why you do it that way and three reasons why you do it the other way. 
So I want to see, can really bright people think on both sides of the coin? Yeah, that's really important. And I look for ambition. I ask a lovely question. I say, in 10 years in the future, and I'm walking through an airport, should I be allowed to travel again? And I stop at the magazine store, should there possibly be magazines in 10 years time? But let's assume all these things. And I'm looking at the rack of magazines and there's Fortune magazine. And Alan, it's your picture on the cover. Why are you on the cover of Fortune magazine in 10 years time? What's the headline? What's the story? I want to hear the ambition. Why do people think they can succeed? What have they done? And you'd be surprised how people stumble over that question. They haven't thought about success or they, ooh, they're worried. Do I express ambition? Do I not express ambition? That too is very telling. How do they go about expressing ambition? Yeah. Anyway, all this adds up. And you get a lot of people to talk to people because you need many sets of eyes. One rule I have is you always have two people in an interview because if it's just one, you hear things a certain way. The number of times I've been in an interview with somebody else and I'd say, oh, they answered that question really well. And the other person said, oh, I thought they answered it terribly. You know, you need people to have different viewpoints on a person and you look for people that will fit in with your team. You know, yes, I'm all for diversity. But there's a lot of natural diversity in us, yeah? When I hear people say, oh, I think I'll hire that person because they think nothing like us. And I go, recipe for disaster. Because when people don't think anything like you, you end up not getting on. <laughs> and you don't get things done. And you've got to work with people that you actually like fundamentally, right? It's not like you have to be chums with them. You know, you don't have to be best buds. But you have to say, yeah, what are the big tests? You're stuck in the Cleveland airport for six hours. Would you want to be with this person? And if you say, nope, I wouldn't, then be careful about hiring them because they're going to come and sit in front of you for a half hour meeting and you're going to be rolling your eyes. You should say, yeah, I wouldn't mind being stuck in the airport for six hours with that person. And Henry, that sort of extends on, I guess. And I'm sure over the years you've been asked to look at certain businesses, invest in certain companies. How do you make that assessment? I'm guessing there's a combination here of the business opportunity, obviously, and people. But what do you look for in entrepreneurs and business owners who are coming to you saying, Henry, I'd like some help. I'd like some investments. What do you do in that instance? It is a good question. And it's exactly what you say. It is very much, do I like the people? Do I think they're thinking well? Do I like the idea that they're dealing with? Recently, we invested in a non-alcoholic beer company started by two 20-something ladies out of Swansea. One's Australians, one's from Swansea. And I read about it in the paper. They were raising money and I called them and I had a conversation with them and they blew me away. They knew their business. They knew their numbers. There were very few questions I could ask them where they go, oh, we hadn't thought of that. In fact, I don't think there were any. Okay. I like the sector. It's trace alcohol. So it is vaguely alcohol. It's nothing that you register on a breath meat or anything. So it's low calorie. It's gluten-free. Gosh, this is playing right where people are going. You know, when I'm drive and I go to a pub or a dinner party or something, and I, okay, I'd like to share a drink with people, but I don't want alcohol. I'm driving. So, hey, this is perfect. You know, and they were bright as buttons. So, yeah, let's invest. Let's roll the dice on this one. Yeah. You know, that's the type of thing. And then we also look for socially good organizations. We're invested in a company out here in Wales that cleans water. 
And what does that mean? It basically has a special process of separating oil from water, for instance. So they're just closing a big deal in Egypt where they're dumping horrible water into the Red Sea. And these guys are coming in and they're able to clean it and dump clean water back into the Red Sea. So the social good, they're also working in Bangladesh to bring clean water to villages because most water charities, they show people how to dig water, but the water they're bringing up to the ground is full of insecticides and arsenic and poisons. This takes all that out. Yeah. And can clean water for a poor village? This would be amazing. So social good is important. But there are some people that really are just winners. We're invested in a company out of Vancouver that sells a swim goggle where you get all your real-time information in the goggle. So it's basically for your professional swimmers, your triathletes, your swim team people. You can get those kind of things on your wrist, but when you're a swimmer, to look at your wrist is really a challenge. This puts it in the goggle and you see it while you're swimming. So social good? Well, not so much. Interesting business? Yeah. (laughs) Run by a guy? Trust him completely. Fantastic guy. And how do you measure that success, Henry, of your investments? Is it a combination of purpose, social good, commercial benefit? How do you reconcile it to yourself? If you've invested in something, it's gone horribly wrong from a commercial point of view, but actually there's been some great people you've got involved with and some causes which are incredibly positive. We've had some losers running interesting you know, businesses with a good social cause, but it didn't work. So they didn't really help socially because the businesses didn't work. You know, I invested in an energy business trying to put wind farms up in Northern Ireland. And then the conservative government came in and kind of took away subsidies and kind of shut that down. And they went foot. That would have been a social good, but they didn't get there. So not much of a social good on that one. We do, we've invested in a lady, an amazing lady, who's creating a series of clinics in the poorest parts of Kenya to help bring low-cost medical care and health care to Kenyans. Will they become an economic success? Maybe, maybe not. It's going to be really hard, but they are doing a lot of good. So I'd say that's a winner, even if we never see a return on the money. Eventually, yeah, these are businesses, and we do this privately, and we'd like to see a return on our money. But, you know, in the meantime, we know we're moving society along. We're helping. And just for a second, Henry, too touch on your foundation. It's well known that your connection to Wales is incredibly strong since I guess you moved the headquarters of Admiral down into Cardiff 20, 25 years ago, I guess. Almost 30 years. We moved in 1992. And since then, Admiral's been you know, a real anchor for the community in Wales and beyond. Talk to me about your Moondance Foundation and what that gets involved with. Well, Moondance, my wife is chair and she's really the driving force and she's incredibly charitable. And we support causes all over the world. But 14 months ago, COVID hit. And we saw that not only, you know, was Wales going to get hit hard, it probably wasn't going to get the support the charities in, say, the London area might get. So we set up a special COVID fund and we've applied, oh, I think about by the time we get to the end of this year, it'll be about 20 million quid towards COVID relief. In 14 months, my wife and the director of the foundation have given out over 1,200 donations to about 800 causes. And sometimes it's 350 quid to do something and set them up so they can communicate with each other on laptops from their home or something like that. Uh, That's a bit more than 350 quid. Uh, (laughs) And sometimes it's thousands to help make sure that 
They can continue to deliver food parcels to the people that are most needy. And they turn these things around in a few days. And the charities are stunned that they're supporting. Not only are they stunned, you know, that the grant came through, but how quickly, because they're thinking, oh, I'll put my application in and six weeks later, maybe we'll hear from them and that sort of thing. My wife and the director, Rebecca, they're turning this thing around in days. So that's been hugely rewarding, the people we've been able to help in this most difficult time. But even beyond that, you know, we supported an incredible Scottish guy who started something called Mary's Meals. And he now feeds 1.5 million kids every morning in the poorest parts of the world, Malawi and Haiti and places like that. And he feeds them because they go to school. And he sets up the kitchens and they're all staffed locally and they use local produce and so forth. But he creates it and he funds through his charity. And if the kid goes to school, he gets a meal. And that's a double win, you know, because a lot of kids weren't going to school because they were hungry. They had no food. Now they get to go to school. And these kids would bite your arm off for education. When he went down there and started talking to the kids in these areas and he asked them, what do you want? They said an education. Yeah. And it's sad because I see in many Western countries, our kids don't value the education. It breaks my heart because there's millions of kids who would just give anything for that education. Absolutely. And Henry, it's important, I guess, for someone like you in particular, who has been super successful over your career, created significant amounts of wealth for your family to be involved in these sorts of causes and to recognize the value of what you're doing, both for the communities and the broader world. Are your children involved in the foundation as well? They're all trustees of the foundation, and they're involved to varying amounts and varying times. They're kind of busy building their own lives, so we're not expecting them to do the heavy lifting at the moment. But we hear some philanthropists set up separate foundations for each of their kids, the idea being then they eliminate any arguments. We're hoping that our foundation will last well past our lifetime, and it'll bring the kids together. I mean, the kids are pretty together anyway, but it'll ensure that they have something to rally around because they are spread out pretty much in between the US and the UK. So we're confident that having one foundation to which they're all members and there's enough that they can all help the causes they're most passionate about, but it'll bring them together. So that's a very important aspect to us that they will take this over in due course. Brilliant. That's great. Henry, I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. And I think we could spend hours chatting through a number of different things. There's a lot of things. I've got this book that I've done for the Admiral managers called Think, Lead, Succeed, the Admiral way, although I'm, I'm looking to rewrite it to kind of de-admiralize it a little bit. But it's got so much in it about how important people are and the little things that managers can do. And that really stems from having bad bosses myself in my career and seeing my kids have horrible bosses and how that made them like a turned off light switch. You know, their whole lives, you know, were damaged by their bad boss. And when they moved to somewhere where they had a good boss, boom, it's like flipping the switch the other way. All of a sudden they start to blossom again. And that's the way people are. And if we had a world of really good leaders and bosses, we'd have a better world. And I think part of the reason for that is some leaders and some bosses, Henry, just don't recognize or appreciate the impact that they have on the people they're leading. There you go. You said it. Appreciation. You know, I've worked with my manager to send literally, and I do it myself, handwrite a thank you note and send it to somebody. One a week. You can't imagine 
the pride, the feeling people have when they receive a handwritten thank you note from somebody in the organization, somebody senior in the organization. It's huge. I've received thank you notes from people for sending them thank you notes. <laughs> so appreciation is a very big part of it. And as bosses, sometimes we forget that. When I hear people say, oh, that's why we pay them. Oh, gosh, I run the other way. I say, you know, yes, I wouldn't work where they didn't pay me. That's true. But that's not what good management and leadership is about. That's not how you get the most from people. I don't go to work thinking, oh, I just worked another hour. That's 33 quid. You know, people aren't that way. They need appreciation. They need recognition. They need challenges. You know, there's so much out there that a good manager, a good leader will do to help improve their business and give them that competitive advantage. And it all comes back to better financial results. Yeah. Henry, just to finish on, I know you're well-known Admiral for your Henryisms. Give me one or two of those that you just abide by. If people like what they do, they'll do it better. Simple one. The team, the team, the team. Yep, and I could go into a long story how that one came about, but the team, the team, the team. You work in teams. Always talk to other people about your ideas. You'll gain, they'll gain. Big win for everybody. Think team. The customer, the customer, the customer. Very simple. If we didn't have any customers, how many people would we employ? <laughs> well, <laughs> don't have to go too far with that one. Those are three of my favorites. Always take lunch. Don't forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> And talking of lunch, it's almost time. So, Henry, thank you very much for your time. As I said, really loved speaking to you today. And I know many of our listeners will be very happy to have heard you. And hopefully we can catch up with you again in due course. Thanks for your time. Great. Thank you, Alan. Stay well. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Julius Baer.